You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Phi. This is part two in a two-part series where I'm rebalancing and reallocating my portfolio. So if you missed part one, be sure to catch that first because we kind of pick it up midstream. Some of this, it just felt so overwhelming at a certain point. And I wanted to kind of share the responsibility. So of course, I was asking you, I put this out to the forums, you know, trying to get multiple opinions there. I'm asking my wife, uh, Laura. Yeah, I'm curious to hear about that and how, how those conversations went. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you have a different relationship speaking financially with your wife than I do with mine. She, Laura is generally, she wants to be a player and a decision maker. She wants to feel some agency there. She was in agreement that our portfolio felt too risky for the point okay. in time where we were, but we couldn't decide what to buy. There was a lot of different, you know, positions thrown out there on the post that I made and I researched them and I was like, well, I don't know if one's better than another. And then I started looking at bond funds and I was like, well, what do you think about this, Laura? And what do you think about that? And what do you think? And she would come back with kind of a shrug almost. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was starting to get annoyed. We're going to take a, a part of our portfolio that's bigger than anything we've ever spent in our life and turn it into something else. You know, right. 30% of your portfolio, it's a lot of money. Yep. And I felt like she should want to do the same level of research that I was doing. And she was just at a certain point, she says, um, well, it seems like all the research that I do, all the answers that I come up with, none of it is good enough for you. So why don't we just hire a financial advisor and get their take on it? And I was like, well, that's actually not a bad idea. You know, she's right. If I'm really expecting professional answers, I should hire somebody. And I, that to answer your question in such a really long roundabout way is why I chose simplicity over complexity. No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, um, gosh, a couple things come to mind. Uh, number one, no two of us are wired exactly the same way. So I think it's completely normal that in a relationship, <laughs> you're going to each bring your individual biases and your preferences and your, you know, background to, to bear. I mean, Lori and I have, you know, my wife and I have these discussions all the time. And, you know, you're right. The hands-on versus hands-off split is a little different. But on the same note, I'm getting the feedback that, you know, hey, maybe we should be considering why financial advisors are useful <laughs> or not. So don't don't make it sound like, you know, sort of there's, there's no conflict here either. I think oh, that's yeah. a normal thing to consider your expenses and, and decide what to do. Sure. But, when, but when it comes to bonds in particular, and I've done a lot of my own research in this area too, right? I yeah. mean, I'm all about, you know, measure twice, cut once. And just because someone's recommending an approach doesn't mean I'm not looking to it in as well. But I find that I have so many questions when it comes to bonds. And yeah. so, you know, when I talk to my advisors and, and others who know a lot more than I do about this stuff um, and I ask about bonds, they say, you know, anything related to bonds is much more difficult to explain and sort of unpack the rationale for A versus B versus C than any other instruments. And so it makes sense that you have a lot of questions. I did glean one nugget that I thought was incredibly useful and, and at least can maybe give people something to think about when it comes to selecting bond funds. You know, while my portfolio is very largely um, passive, you know, indexed mutual funds, 
there are some active funds in there, and and one of those happens to be a bond fund. And when I asked about the rationale, be you know, why is this bond fund better than this other one? I said, well, you know, just you do the math, even net of fees, it is outperforming these other funds for the long term. And in their experience, picking bond funds based on sort of the the quality and reputation of the fund managers is worth something. Now, there is manager risk as well, right? If you buy into an actively managed fund and the management team changes, as can happens, or that manager underperforms for some reason, right? That's its own kind of risk. But in their experience, you know, people who are longer tenured, who have, you know, this makes logical sense, but being longer tenured, not just showing sort of long-term results, but also being able to weather the different storms that come over time, the different types of market downturns, right? They're not all for the same reasons, um, is not a bad strategy to think about. So no one is saying actively managed bond funds are the only way to win the race here. But if you, if that is something you're interested in considering, you're going to have to do your homework. And this is, in fact, what people are paying for very often when they're working with, um, you know, a fee based advisor of any kind. Yeah, it's I've heard this before um, and and you had told me that. And and that is kind of conventional wisdom. Like it's all about the fund manager. At the same point, I sit there and say, well, how am I supposed to know yeah. <laughs> if Barney Frank is better than, you know, Bobby Sue. I, I just don't know. It, it's and right. so so I was just saying to myself at a certain point I was like, you know, Vanguard index funds have served me well and having read up on the sort of theory of how they're buying these bonds and how it changes and transitions over time, I feel like um it's still a a better solution for me than me trying to, you know, do even more homework. So, I mean, some of the other yeah. things that were suggested to me, aside from an indexed uh, fund, a bond index fund, uh, were I-bonds. You mentioned mm -hmm. I-bonds, which is, and somebody also mentioned series EE savings bonds. Um, so issued directly by Treasury Direct, you know, I went on and I created a Treasury Direct account. I was like, oh, this sounds great. You know, this is paying... I think they're paying 7.1% currently. Mm -hmm. It's a variable interest rate. You know, it has a, it has a base fixed rate and then there's a variable um, interest rate on top of that. And it changes every six months. So for the next six months, you're getting quite a premium on these I-bonds. Um, but what I was finding was there's a limitation on how much you can buy every year. So it's- right. 10,000, right? 10,000 per person. So, um, you know, when you're talking about the numbers that start representing 30% of a portfolio, it's, it's kind of hard to play in a little, and this isn't to, I mean, I don't want to sound like a jerk here, but that's not that, that's not going to move the needle for me. Right. It's not going to have an impactful sort of effect on the magnitude of change you're looking to do here. Right. And it also comes with a series of limitations. So you have to hold them for a minimum of a year. Um, and then there's a five year penalty. If you cash them in within five years, you know, you have to forego the last three months of interest, three months. Yep. which I, I don't know who knows what it's going to be in five years or who knows when I need might may need that amount of money, but it sure. just didn't feel as liquid to meal to me. And it also felt like a bunch more work and it didn't seem to fit the simplicity mantra. It doesn't mean it mm -hmm. might not work for somebody else where 10,000 represents a higher proportion of their portfolio, sure. you know, 20,000 bucks between a couple every year. Um, could, could be helpful. I didn't, I, w I didn't find that attractive. The series EE bonds, I think that's a 30 year commitment. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like, I, I remember getting some of those for Christmas as a kid. And oh yeah. That's why I have a treasury direct account. Oh, is that right? In recent years. Yep. <laughs> Did you wait the full 30 years then? <laughs> uh, a few of them for sure. Yeah. So then, um, some of the other things I was looking at were muni bonds, which you mentioned already. Um, so municipal bonds are tax exempt. Um, and so for me, that seemed really attractive because as we're talking about asset location, I have 30% of my, um, assets currently sitting in a taxable account. So the problem historically with putting bonds in a taxable account is that they're always throwing off dividends and right. generally the dividends are unqualified dividends. So it means, you know, they're subject to your ordinary, right. more taxes, yeah, ordinary income tax. So not a great solution. Um, people do now make the argument that because yields are so low, um, there may be a place for those in your portfolio. It all depends on your um, your marginal tax rate um, and also the state that you live in. So I did find a pretty cool little Excel spreadsheet, and I'll link that up um, to to do the calculation. You basically oh, okay. cool. you put in, put in all your information, and it'll say, "No, you should buy muni bonds," or "No, you you could buy like BND, for example, which is the you know Vanguard bond fund." Um, so there's there's kind of a little gray area there, even within this. But in general, bonds. Um, probably belong in your tax deferred account just because of the nature of how bonds produce uh, dividends um, to your account. So, right, yeah, right, right. And so this, if I could, I could play that back, what I heard from you, Eric, is, you know, by and large, we want to have bonds in our, uh, you know, tax deferred accounts, our 401ks, for example. But because you also need fixed income in your taxable brokerage account, if you're an early retiree, right, you need to have money, a bridge account that you can live on. You also need to have a fixed income source in there. And that's where municipal bonds could fit in. That's right. Yeah, because they're providing the you can, you know, in a downturn, I can cash those muni bonds in and um, they'll they'll serve as a as a means for me not cashing out my stock positions. So it feels like it's it's serving that purpose. Um, the harder part for me in unwinding that 100% stock position in my taxable account is I have to buy into it over time. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to cash out stocks right now and take the capital gain on that. It just doesn't make sense from a tax standpoint. Um, and because I could basically convert the money in my tax deferred accounts to achieve close to my allocation now, it made sense for me over time between now and 2024 to with my next series of buys. So I'm making buys every week into the account. I just start allocating that to say, buy. I'm buying MUB, which is a municipal bond ETF, um, right in my taxable brokerage account. So I'm increasing the alloc the bond allocation in right. the taxable account over time. It's, it doesn't happen very quickly at all. Right. Now, Jason looking into his crystal ball is uh, uh, imagining you struggling potentially a year from now if we have a severe market downturn and your gut is to buy more stocks because that we are, we all want to buy in a down market when you're still accumulating yes. which you will be in a year but you know you're going to have to keep also buying bonds to reach your target allocation so that, i suspect that may be a struggle i mean what do you think i should do <laughs> well you should do the right thing and build to your target allocation i i think one of the pieces of advice I suspect you have come across, particularly on more conservative sites, is this idea that you need to come to an investing 
in sort of philosophy, yeah, right. That that hopefully you document, but you, you have something you're working against, and you stick to it. And and so many strategies out there, right? I mean that that is the whole point. They're they're looking at a long term. They're not looking at what happens in the next five years. If you're saying this is my allocation, like whether it's a lazy three fund or something more complicated, this is kind of a long haul strategy. And besides regular rebalancing, which will happen annually or some people do this quarterly, you're going to stay to plan. And there are some built in things like, you know, increasing your fixed income position over time, for example. But besides that, you stay the course. No. So I, that, see, no? this is what I disagree with this. I okay. think that, I mean, do you, you know this idea about a bond tent, right? I do. So, you know, building that's up- a specific approach. And I, I think that's okay that that varies. Right. Okay. But I mean, this that, is- that, no, That's a thing. This is no different than that. No, it's not. But I, I guess my point was- Because- <laughs> let, 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 me, let me restate my, what my position No, it's was. good. I want to have the argument here. I oh, think no, no, this, no. It's not I an argument. I, don't, I actually don't think we disagree. <laughs> okay. Well, you said, well, what, what, what should I do? <laughs> And my answer was, you should stick to the allocation you're trying to hit. So but if you have is, a target, huh? No, I know, I know what you're saying, man. But there's also this idea of opportunistic okay. rebalancing, right? So ah, I see. I mean, and we should maybe we should talk about this. But okay. I, I don't, I don't see this plan as being having to be fixed. I, I, I see the value in determining uh, what you want uh, for a certain transition transition period, and it should operate. I'm, you know, maybe five years, maybe eight years. Um, but I don't think that this is going to be something that's going to be static. I, I see it changing over time. And I actually see, you know, the idea of a bond tent is basically the riskiest time for your portfolio is the day that you retire, right? Yeah. Because you have a sequence of returns risks. Absolutely. It's, it, you're, the largest your portfolio has ever been, and it can move in very large ways. So the risk is very high. And so you create this tent of bonds, which you essentially spend down. So you build that tent of bonds, you know, leading up to that retirement date. And when you get to the retirement date, the FI date, you then spend those bonds down and your equity allocation increases over time. So yes. that's actually what I see doing here. Yeah. And I, I, to be clear, I don't have a problem with that strategy and it's very popular in the fire community. I don't know. Is it, is it that popular? It's popular. I, I mean, I, I think there are, there are louder people now than ever saying like, ah, that's, that's pointless. But when I think about some of the communities I spend time in, you know, the discord, for example, bond yeah. tents are still discussed okay. as something people are planning to do. Okay. Yeah. So it feels okay to me. I mean, I, I'm just going to be honest, like uh, rebalancing this thing didn't feel good when I did it. Like it, I, it felt good because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I had lots of people, yes. including you, who I really, really trust and, and value your advice saying, this is something that normal people do when they approach retirement. They take some of the risk off the table. You know, you've, you've won the game in many ways, so don't lose it in like the ninth inning here. And yeah. I appreciate that, but I also think to myself, um, there's the, still that kernel of my brain that says you're you're not making as much as you could. <laughs> well, and let's talk about the things that could make this very complicated for you because you haven't mentioned this yet, but you know, you have talked on the show before. We've done two whole episodes about, you know, Eric's passive income earning strategy, yeah. and I suspect even if you stop doing you know, one of your main uh, kind of, you know, time consumptive jobs right now, that is architecture and architecture does feed some of your other work that you do. Oh, yeah. Even if you stop doing that, 
there are still things you are either actively or passively going to be gaining income from. And so, I mean, it seems to me that would make this a lot more complicated thought process for you than certainly it would be for me because I didn't have that when I stopped working. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I, it's definitely, I guess I view that as in a way a fixed income asset. That's, you know, it's like, it would be like having a pension, right? But the problem, and you pointed this out to me and my wife has pointed this out to me is like, well, it's not really like a pension because it's not guaranteed. Like it could go away. And, you know, if I don't publish a video on YouTube for a month, the revenue, I can feel the revenue change, you know, or if I'm not active on social media, things change. So am I willing to continue that up for another couple of years and just keep feeding things so that ends up being almost like a fixed income allocation in the portfolio? Maybe. Um, It certainly wouldn't make my wife that happy if I was spending. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, I believe she brought this up in the, uh, our episodes with our spouses. Yeah. This yeah. whole idea is, is Eric going to stop working when he says he's stopping working? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's why I'm kind of paying attention to how you have felt and how things have changed for you over time, because those things that fell away from work for you, um, that you didn't enjoy, it, it brings you great joy not to do them anymore. But the things for that sure. you loved about work, are your I think you're finding are difficult to replace. And so I see that <laughs> and I'm wondering like, okay, I still need kind of a creative outlet, you know, and maybe that, maybe this is it, you know, and, yeah. or maybe it's something else, maybe it transitions to something different, but, um, I don't know. What, do you have any advice for me there? Well, I, I mean, I, the first piece of advice is, is non-advice really. It's, you know, our situations are all different because we are each individuals and the things that we, you know, gain, positive return from whether it's validation or or you know a feeling of contribution whatever it is those differ and you know this is something that i have become increasingly comfortable with over time in the first six months this was kind of the biggest kind of thing nagging at me and i've written about it and we talked about it on this show in some of the early episodes that has kind of gone away quite a bit now here almost 18 months out (laughs) because i am i do feel rewarded by the types of things we do here. Right? I feel like I'm contributing when I have an answer to a question somebody posts that they find valuable. Um, I'm not to say that that's always going to be the answer. I'm not always going to do this show. I assume at some point we'll decide the show has run its course and maybe that's 30 years from now and maybe it's <laughs> 30 days from now. Um, I suspect the truth is somewhere in between. Um, we can't end but, it before I reach five, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That would be, that's a total cliffhanger, man. Sorry, sorry, Eric. Yeah, that'd be awful. We're just, yeah, we're, we're going to stop. Hopefully he makes it, but 30 days. I'm definitely not 30 days from being five, man. All right. Appreciate that. What I really meant to say is if there's, you know, if, if there's one truism I've learned in my first, you know, 18 months almost of, of being, you know, post retire early is change is constant. So how you feel and what you're going to feel value from and what you feel is a gap is going to change over time. So it's not possible to predict it. I think you assess essentially as I would, this is my opinion, you appear to have some kind of insurance policy that you already have revenue generation happening. And even if you decide to change the shape of it so that it takes less effort and, and maybe you focus on the things that truly bring you joy, even if they bring you less revenue than all the things do. That's a, that's something you do have access to. And that's frankly, that's a very positive thing. So knowing that, am I allowed to buy stocks next year when there's a big dip in the market? Yes. 
I, I, I feel like I am. Here. I am not going to sit here and say, no, no, no. All your buys must only be municipal bonds. <laughs> that's I right. think that's kind of a crazy position. I'm not such a black and white person, even though, you know, my, my risk tolerance is different than yours. And, and even in the sort of accumulation years was different. Nothing is black and white. And what, being able to capitalize on market downturns and while you're still buying is a great thing. Of yeah. course, I would never say zero. But just as we talked about in a much earlier episode, your FIRE plan, your post-retirement budget, and therefore your number assumes you don't have passive income. Yeah, that's So right. I think still driving towards the asset allocation you want is the right thing. You know, you, you can change that glide path a little bit because you do have effectively some pretty big guardrails from your passive income business that I suppose even if you stop actively generating content will you know, will down, you know, down ramp on its own. Yeah. It's not going to go to zero tomorrow when you stop. So right. yeah, you've got some guardrails that not everybody has, but you know, you don't want to rest on your laurels either. Yeah. No. How's that for a answer that's a semi answer? <laughs> Honest. Yeah. It's so this idea about mixing um you know, the I should I be trying to replicate that asset allocation exactly in my taxable account versus my tax deferred? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, for me, it's just about thinking about probabilities. And this is this is my opinion on it. This isn't something I've kind of gotten from anybody else. So if I speak this poorly, this is on me, not somebody else. Um, I think about what are likely events, right? How long are typical market downturns and yeah. what form do they take and how correlated or not are bonds and stock returns during different types of events? And so the kind of place I've settled on mentally is as long as I've got, let's call it, you know, 12 to 18 months of cash. Some people would say two or three years. This is sure. a difference of opinion. Um, plus a few years, you know, maybe two or three years of fixed income that I can access, I'm going to be good. Okay. And so that means that right now my brokerage account has to reflect at least that. Yes. You know, I've got to have cash somewhere to that tune we talked about, but I've also got to have municipal bonds or other things I could sell um, in that time. And so, yes, my percent allocation towards bonds is higher in my tax deferred accounts because I can't touch those still for another right. 11 years uh, at this point. So, yeah, I need I need to have that stuff there and ready when I need it. But in the meantime, I, you know, I, I still want to. I don't want to over. I don't want a too large of a position. Is what I'm trying to say. I don't want too large of a position in my brokerage account in fixed income because I still want to be generating revenue. And in it crowds out. It crowds out the real. The, the advantage of having a taxable brokerage account and putting stocks in it is, you yeah. when you cash them in, you know, hopefully you're going to be paying a lower tax rate on those long-term capital gains than you are, you know at your marginal yeah. tax rate, your ordinary tax rates. And it's a real, that, these are the things that I start thinking, okay, well, I could get, I could really, <laughs> I could get lost in the calculation. And so that's why at first, my first pass was to say, okay, 70, 30 allocation, I'm going to do it both in taxable in both, yeah. and pre-tax. But I like your idea about thinking about it in time horizons. Like, okay, if I get to a market downturn between 51 and 59 and a half, and it's four years. I, I like. I need. I need f at least four years of cash on hand, or or cash equivalents, like fixed cash income stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So. Well, I, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say that once 
I mean, if you made it three years and the downturns four years, then you're dipping into your stocks at absolutely the worst time. The worst time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So then I started thinking there is this concept about money is fungible, right? I mean, you, this is talked about all the time in the fire community. So if you have bonds in your tax deferred accounts, it doesn't mean you can't have access to them necessarily. Right. I mean, you could sell your bonds in your tax in your tax deferred account, exchange them for stocks, essentially. Right. Sell your bonds, buy stocks and do the reverse of that in your taxable account. Um, right. Well, and I think the other thing that makes this a complex question from a giving general kind of stating general opinions. And of course, this isn't specific guidance is individual circumstances vary so much. Right. If you're somebody that has a much heavier tilt towards your brokerage account. You're somebody that received a lot of equity or other things as a result of your job that ended up tipping the scales that way. Well, then the, the sort of percent representation of the different asset classes may differ substantially from yeah. what we're talking about here in your taxable brokerage account versus your tax advantaged account. So, you know, it is difficult to say, well, what should I do with this? Because the answer is it depends. I guess the biggest lesson here is to really look at it with through a different lens. Like you really have to be planning for, okay, this account has the following job <laughs> and it needs to be able to do this. And it, and therefore it needs to have assets like this in that account so I can actively do that job when I get to this point in, yes. my, in my FI journey. And I hadn't fully appreciated that. You know, I just thought, oh, accounts, pile of money. I'll be able to just shuffle it around how I please. And it's really, it's not that simple. It's not. And, you know, something I referenced in the asset allocation episode is there's a three part series that Fritz over at Retirement Manifesto wrote on the three bucket strategy yeah. um, that I find very educational because not only does it, you know, just start with, hey, what's the three bucket strategy, but talks about his drawdown strategy. And that is is informed by the very questions that you were just mentioning. Yeah. And that is, you know, how much buffer do I need for each of these circumstances? And what are the jobs that those, you know, accounts have to fulfill? And while he's a little older than us, and also I think from a risk tolerance perspective, a little more conservative, the the information is highly valuable. So I'll definitely link that up in the show notes. Yeah, cool. The mechanics of rebalancing, I just did it all in like over a period of two days. Um, okay. I, I looked at, you know, stocks were up. I was like, this is, if I were rebalancing my portfolio, I, and it was, uh, you know, at a certain band, you know, people look at rebalancing portfolios in different ways, right? You can do it based on a certain time horizon. You can try and time the market if you want opportunistic rebalancing. So if you see certain opportunity or a certain trend in the market, you can kind of take advantage of that or other people set up bands. So you set up an asset allocation and you just say, okay, anytime my stocks or bonds are above or below a certain percentage band, then I'll actively rebalance then. And, you know, I've heard anything from 5% to 20%, 5% would seem like you'd be doing it a lot <laughs> very often, yeah. which wouldn't seem great to me. Um, but 20% is generally, you know, I've heard, heard that thrown out there quite often. Um, I chose to do it all in one shot because I thought I've screwed this up for long enough. If I'm going to make this decision, I want to make it and set it straight. Now I chose a certain amount, did it all at once. And then I'm buying into it with my weekly investments to kind of do the fine tuning bits in my taxable account. How do you rebalance your account? Do you have performance bands set up? 
Now, I think effectively my portfolio, you know, is modeled, uh, you know, long ago now. And we have, you know, kind of our, our, you know, investing philosophy statement that we kind of work against. And quarterly, we're in there looking at it, just making sure nothing's kind of out of whack and that there's not some opportunity to take advantage of. But, you know, any rebalancing that would need to happen would happen at that time. For me, it would, I was so far out of whack. It just didn't seem to make make sense to wait for some arbitrary date in the future. So no, do you think that's, I, that you. was okay? I absolutely do. I would, I would be doing the same thing. Okay. I, I am curious though. Like <laughs> I, I really wish I had a camera in the room because I'm picturing you with your, like your cursor on the like, submit button yes <laughs> and like just not quite putting your finger on the button getting up and doing something else <laughs> is that yeah. what happened it was killer man i was not happy about it when i'm going to make this sell order like i never place sell orders it's, it's always a buy order you know it's just right. mar market market order um so placing the sell order i was like oh what if like i don't know i could i could really screw this up it seems like there's the potential to really screw this up so i I did a little Googling around on it. Like, well, make sure it's a limit order, you know, so you can, you basically set your price. Uh, Cause right. I didn't want something, some weird blip happening. And then all of a sudden I'm just like evaporating a third of my portfolio. Right. And so I go, you know, I, I like, I set the thing just a little bit above where, where it was trading or whatever and um, execute the order. And it's, you know, it's a large large transaction. And so I was like, Ugh. didn't immediately didn't feel great about it. And then I was like, I'm going to go out for my hike. So I always go out for a hike kind of middle of the day and I'm on my hike yeah. and I'm like, did I put the decimal point in the right place? Oh, no. <laughs> you know? It was oh, like the man. difference between, yeah, it was, it was a pretty big number that I would have walked away from if I put the decimal point in the wrong place. And so here I am at the middle of nowhere, like freaking out about this, like no oh, internet man. service. I can't check anything. So I get back to the studio and of course I was like, it was fine. Everything was fine. It rebalanced. It was, you know, whatever. It makes me feel slightly better that I'm not the only one who does that kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm now I'm just in that, that point of like, Oh, well, I just took a bunch of fun stuff off the, off the table. So now when you look at, you know, a big market day, it's kind of like, mm, well, it could have, could have been better, you know? That's why you can't look at those returns, man. Cause you're not going to do anything different. <laughs> I've told you this before, even when I was accumulating, I wasn't looking at those numbers. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. It's just a different mentality. That's yeah, funny. I do wonder how you think you'll feel 30 days from now. And like, is this just a recency thing that has it kind of weighing on your mind and 30 days from now you'll be like, oh, this feels pretty good. Or <laughs> if the market like goes bonkers, are you going to think about it from those terms? What's your prediction? Yeah, that. Crystal ball. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just see, I see the market going up. I was like, well, I didn't hit the top of the market with that. That was dumb. I think Laura had the most grounding advice for me and she said, Look, this is not an abnormal thing for people in our position to do. Have a more conservative portfolio. And a lot of people would look at a 70-30 allocation and say, well, that's not that conservative really, you know? And oh, if, yeah. if you look at the difference between a 70 and an 80 and a 90 portfolio, the risk is a lot different, um, but the returns are, they're not, <laughs> they're not huge. Oh, compounded over time? Sure. I mean... Yeah, I wouldn't want to do this early in my accumulation phase, but that's not where we're at. And I have to always remind myself of that. It's like, I if I look at a target date retirement fund, you know, for 2024, it's not 100% stocks. 
definitely no. not. And, and it's going to be more bonds than you want to have because it's 60, those, 40. You know, the, yeah. Right. They're modeling a 30 year yeah. retirement. Right. And you're thinking about at least 40. So yeah, makes sense. There are an awful lot of people, uh, a, lot, a lot of compatriots of yours who have, you know, simple portfolios or lazy portfolios, as many call them, and have been doing it for many years. Yeah. Uh, and they're very successful. It's where you so, want to put your time, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Right. And uh, <laughs> some people love obsessing over their portfolio and making small changes and really understanding the ramifications of X, Y, and Z options. And then there's the rest of us who don't. <laughs> yeah. So I just don't want to get it wrong, you know, like real colossal way. <laughs> that's, you know, that was Jack Bogle's whole idea, right? You know, right. don't touch it a lot because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to incur costs that you wouldn't have to otherwise. Let's just keep it simple. Uh, follow indices and a few funds and you're good. <laughs> don't just do something. Stand there. Isn't that what he said? <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. That's uh, it's confirmation that I, I didn't stray too far, you know, off the path. No, I, I you're, well, you're, you're very welcome. I, I really enjoyed watching your thought <laughs> you process suffer. evolve. Well, no, it's just, it's interesting to see how far your thing has evolved over time. It went from like, this is the way to <laughs> I'm questioning what I've been doing to I've decided I need to make a, uh, make a change and I've made a change. Yeah. And now you're at the, I'm re I'm evaluating that change and reflecting on it. And you know, the obsession over that will, will lessen. Of course, that's just how our, our brains are set up, but yeah. it's been informative for me and it's caused me to reevaluate some of my own decision-making and the, the why of certain things. And, yeah. That's cool. Well, what if other paths and I've done more back testing against lazier portfolios as a result. And it's, it's been kind of fun, a fun exercise. Strong beliefs loosely held. Precisely. Join us as the conversation continues next time on two sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple podcasts or wherever you listen for show notes, resources, and links to the video version. Please check out our website at two sides of Fi.com.